Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we return to our study on the life of King David. Today, Pastor Kirk will be looking at a passage in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 24. Before we get to our message, I just want to thank you for your continued support of this podcast and invite you to come and to worship with us at Calvary Baptist Church. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and we'd love the opportunity to connect with you in person. Our worship is at 1030 on Sunday mornings, and if you need more information, you can find that at calvaryfayetteville.com or call the church at 479-442-4634. Again, Pastor Kirk is sharing a message from 1 Samuel 24 entitled, David Loving His Enemies, or a better way to think of it is, How to Deal with Hardship and Adversity. Let's listen together. Have you ever been done wrong? Have you ever been mistreated? Treated unfairly? Maybe you have been the target of someone's anger unjustly. Maybe even their hatred, their jealousy. Well, I think probably that is, at least some time or the other, a common experience uh, among God's people. Well, in fact, it's probably a common experience just in life. But God's people especially... Uh, the Bible tells us, are going to suffer and undergo tribulation and persecution in this world. In fact, Amy Carmichael's poem, No Scar, asks the question, uh, have you ever suffered and do you bear the scars of following Christ? That those who have no scars and following Christ, it could be because They've not followed him very closely or for very long because sooner or later we will experience adversity, we will experience hardship. And today's message dealing with uh, David, the uh, promised king, the anointed king, but the not yet serving as king, we find that he gives us an example of how to respond to adversity and hardship in our lives. Now, you have to always be careful. When you go back and you read the Old Testament stories, the narratives of the Old Testament, you have to be cautious in how you draw truths out of those Old Testament stories and apply them to our lives in today's culture and in today's experience because oftentimes that just leads to an abuse and a misuse of Scripture. Certainly those stories were given to us as our example. Uh, Those stories are given to us for our uh, growth in the Word. But we have very different sensitivities today, very different sensibilities today, uh, very different things that tend to motivate and guide our lives and our culture. And sometimes we try too hard to make an Old Testament story apply to my particular needs today. One of those classic examples 
is what we talked about earlier in our study of the life of David, of David facing Goliath. And almost always when you read that story, when you hear that story taught, or you hear that story preached, almost always the application made by teachers and students of the Word is to put themselves into the shoes or the sandals of David and come away from that story basically as a story that teaches us how to face the giants of our lives. But I would remind you that David does not represent you and me in that story. You and me in that story are the weak, are the uh, hopeless, are the frightened men hiding behind the rocks and the trees on the hillside. The David in the story is Jesus Christ, the one who slays our giants, the one who has slain the, the greatest giant of all, and that is the enemy of our souls, the devil. And so we have to be careful. However, in saying that, I want to say this about this story. There are some very good examples and lessons that we can take from 1 Samuel chapter 24 to apply to our lives today. They fit. They are timeless principles about how to deal uh, with adversity and hardship in our lives. Now remember that even though David, a man after God's own heart, was God's chosen king, he was not yet the king. The first king of Israel was Saul. And Saul was a miserable failure. He was the people's choice. He was one who stood head and shoulders above others, a great warrior, a very handsome man. He was the best that Israel had to offer. He was the best that humanity had to offer. But that's not what God was looking for. God was looking for someone who was not out to serve himself or out for his own honor and glory. God was looking for a man after his own heart. And actually, and we'll talk about this more later on uh, in our study of David, it's not so much what David was that caused God to choose him. It was what God was going to make David into. He wanted David to be a man after his own heart, and it was after the heart of God for David instead of after the heart of the people to have a king like all the other nations. Now, in our text today, we're in the middle of a real time of test and hardship for David. In fact, uh, the king, Saul, was out to destroy him. Already, he had made several attempts to pin him to the wall with his spear, to kill him by his own hands. He had experienced hardship by Saul laying multiple traps before him to, to seek to, to capture him or to have others capture him for him so that he could destroy him. He was hunting him down like an animal in these chapters, not only in chapter, chapter 24, but before this and after this. He was seeking now to trap him into the hands of those who would kill him, and Saul would be glad to do it his very own self. Now, keep in mind, David had done nothing to ask for that. David had been completely loyal to King Saul. 
He had served him faithfully. He had defeated many of Saul's enemies. He was one who led his armies for a period of time uh, until Saul removed him out of jealousy. When he overheard the women singing the chorus, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And that for Saul was unbearable. Saul had lapsed into a state of mental decline and demonic influence. And now he considered David a mortal enemy. Certainly something that David did not ask for, David did not deserve. For David, it was all so unfair. Did you ever notice that with your children, that's one of the first words they ever learn? Unfair, unfair especially if they have siblings, right? Unfair. This was very unfair. He had been a loyal subject, a family friend, a personal comfort to Saul, only to be repaid with animosity, hatred, and evil intent. So Saul is after David. David is growing discouraged and wearisome with his plight. He has 600 men in his army, but you might accurately describe them as 600 ne'er-do-wells. They were not always the best bunch of guys. Some of them were crooks. Some were running from the law. Some had not paid their taxes. But that was about all that David could gather together for his army. And they had retreated to the wilderness of En Gedi. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, you know that En Gedi is in the Jewish uh, or the uh, Judean uh, wilderness south of Jerusalem. It's one of the most rugged places in the world. One of the best places to hide, full of many caves and full of uh, many canyons. It's a wasteland. You have to know where to find water in that place, for it's very rare. And so David and his men had retreated to En Gedi, to this wilderness, to a place known at that time as the Wild Goats Rocks. For Saul, it was a heady time. It seems that finally, David was in his grasp. Saul had been given the word of where David was hiding. Saul didn't have 600 ne'er-do-wells, untrained men. Instead, he had 3,000 crack troops. And he heads down into this wilderness to capture and to kill David. Now, for time's sake, we're not going to read all of chapter 24. I'll read it in sections as we uh, present the points of this message along the way. And I have five points. I'll go ahead and tell you right now. We probably won't get through them all. It'll probably carry over till next Sunday. But as I said before, here's the setting. They're in the wilderness of En Gedi. Saul's men are hot on the trail of David and his men. Scripture says in the first part of chapter 24, now this may come across as a bit humorous to us, that Saul goes into one of the caves, quote, to relieve himself. Now I'm not going to get into what that means. It has two possibilities. 
And I'm not talking about number one and number two. It has two possibilities. He's either gone in a cave to use it as a latrine, or the wording there in the Hebrew could also mean to take a nap and find a cool place for a rest. A rest stop. Let's just leave it at that. And you can go with whichever one you want to go with. What he did not know was he went into a cave, a cave that was deeper and larger than what he could first tell from looking on the outside. For inside that cave, deeper in the cave, is where David and at least some of his men were hiding. And so Saul goes in, takes off his outer cloak that covered his tunic, laid it aside, and relieved himself, or took a nap, or whatever. His men said to him, David's men, he is now in your hands. Here is your chance to kill the one who is out to kill you. David did not do it, but very quietly, he sneaked up to where Saul was. He took his cloak and he took his knife and he cut off a piece of the corner uh, of the fabric of the bottom of that cloak and withdrew back into the cave. David got, or, uh, Saul got up, put his cloak back on, not even noticing, and left the cave and went down into the canyon to the other side of the hill. And we take up our reading. We take up our reading. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, before we take up our reading, let me say this to you. Here's a key truth. God promises hardship and adversity for his people while we are in this world. God doesn't just allow it, doesn't just look the other way, but God promises, and I'll take it even further, God even directs hardship and adversity for his people while we are in this world. Why does he do that? For there are many lessons that we will never learn through victory and prosperity. We can only learn through hardship and adversity. The New Testament tells us that repeatedly. Paul, Peter, John, James, Jude, they all reaffirm that truth of suffering for God's people in the world. Jesus himself promises it in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. So here are five steps for surviving the hardship and adversity we face in life. And we begin our reading with verse 8 of our text. Afterward, meaning after Saul has left the cave, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? 
Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. Point number one. And by the way, today's message is brought to you by the letter R. Refrain from retaliation. How to deal with adversity? Refrain from retaliation. How to deal with hardship in life? How to respond when you are treated unfairly or when there are others bent on your destruction, either your reputation or even your life and livelihood. Refrain. Hold back. Refrain from retaliation. No one would have blamed David for killing Saul, least of all David's men. David had every right, it would appear, in human thinking to have killed Saul and be rid of this enemy who will never be satisfied until David is gone. After all, Saul, as we have said, has already attempted on multiple occasions to kill David with his own hands. He would have been expected. It would only be fair for David to retaliate. But David didn't. He refrained from retaliation. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament where Jesus, early in his ministry, is preaching a lengthy sermon did you get that? A lengthy sermon, not limited to three points in a poem, but covering all kinds of topics. He is setting forth principles for the kingdom of God, the kingdom that had now come with Jesus in the world. And you say, well, well, what words? Because that sermon is three chapters long, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I'm talking about these words found beginning in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now understand, when Jesus quoted what was partially Scripture, when Jesus said, you have heard that it has been said, when he uses that frame of reference or that terminology, he is almost always quoting Old Testament scripture. That was the Bible of Jesus and the apostles' day, the Old Testament. You have heard that it is said, love your neighbor. But somewhere along the way, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it had been expanded on and expounded on and so-called scholars had added to the Word of God. Now listen, there's a reason why you should not add to the Word of God or take away from the Word of God. In fact, the Bible promises um, uh, that you will not go unpunished for adding to or taking away from the Word of God. We don't have the freedom to just do what we want to and to play loose and fast with the Bible. But there were those who did. And they said, the Bible says, love your enemy. Well, but what about, what about our love your neighbor? What about your enemy? Well, you've got to hate your enemy. That's only right. That's only human. 
So they added to the word of God and they confused it. And Jesus comes along and turns it upside down. He says, listen, principles of the kingdom are this. You don't just love your neighbor, you love your enemy too. And you don't just love your enemy, you pray for the ones who are persecuting you because it's in living by those kingdoms or by those truths that you are a citizen of the kingdom of God and son of the Father who is in heaven. Now, those words about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you follow directly some words that were spoken before that that go like this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist or retaliate or oppose the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In other words, go beyond what is expected in blessing even those who are seeking to abuse you or take advantage of you. In other words, David, by not retaliating and killing Saul or trying to take him prisoner or in some way uh, to pay him back for what he was doing to David, David was following kingdom principles a thousand years before Jesus even came and began to set those principles forth. David was a man after God's own heart. God was shaping him into a kingdom citizen. Point number one, refrain from retaliation. Point number two, respect authority. Respect authority. The last part of verse 10 said, I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. And he continues speaking to Saul, see my father, See the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Respect authority. David even comes to the point of realizing that to cut off the corner of Saul's cloak was disrespectful even to the king. He should not have even done that. But David did respect the authority of the king. I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. David recognized and respected the truth that Saul was the king anointed by God to shepherd his people. He had fought Goliath for God's anointed king. David, along with many other battles, had served that king faithfully. When he was in mental anguish and torment, he had played the lyre for him to calm his spirit and to soothe his soul. In every way, David had respected his authority. And even when the king was trying to kill him, he saw no reason to change. This was still God's anointed king. He still wore the crown. 
he still sat on the throne. And in spite of all the mistreatment at Saul's hand, David respected the king's anointing and his authority. Now, folks, we need to remember something here. All authority belongs to God. There is no authority in the world except God's authority. Jesus himself said it at the beginning of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. But this king we serve chooses to delegate some of his authority to others, to believers most assuredly, but even to unbelievers. That the authority that uh, a politician has in his place or office, the authority that a pastor or pastors have in churches, the authority that the police who are out to keep our streets safe have, understand that all authority of all kinds, every bit of authority in the world belongs to the King of Kings. He loans it out. He delegates it out for our good and for our well-being in this life. Well, well, why then is it abused? Because it is in the hands of sinful men and sinful women. And even with the authority that they've been delegated and entrusted by God, they oftentimes abuse it. But that does not give us reason and permission to disrespect it. And that's why we live in a very bad time today. And I'll be honest with you, there are very few politicians I have a lot of confidence in. Do I have anyone like me in this service today? Very few. But we have come to the place in life that we don't just debate the issues and discuss the issues. We attack the person in that office. We have had presidents do awful things, morally and politically. We've had many who have abused their power and abuse their power still. We have others in the halls of power in Washington, in Little Rock, in city governments of the towns we live in, who oftentimes abuse their power. And understand this, they don't need you to take them down or to pay them back, so to speak. Everyone who's been given authority, even a father in a household, or a mother in a household, or a boss at work, or a supervisor in the place of work. Understand, every bit of authority that's been delegated to every person in this world will have to be answered for to the one who delegated that authority to them. So understand that people are going to have to quote answer for their deeds, but it still it does not give us permission to disrespect 
authority. In fact, Jesus himself said to his disciples, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to the Lord the things that are the Lord's, to God the things that are God's. Paul said in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now I realize that's another whole subject that needs to go much further than just what I've said, but that's all that I'll say about that as of today. We need to respect authority. Certainly, if not the person, then the position. How to respond to hardship and adversity. Refrain from retaliation, number one. Respect authority, number two. Let me give you one other point. If you promise to be good and stay awake, this will be the last one for today. And all God's people said, amen. Number three, realize that God is the judge. This point has to go with the point we just made. To respect authority, you have to realize and remember that ultimately God is the judge. Not you and not me. We take up our reading with verse 12. David is still speaking to Saul. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Notice verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. And he says it again in verse 15. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence. We must never lose sight of this fact. That no matter how things look around us, no matter what is happening to us, that God is the ultimate judge in the universe and also over your life and over mine. You see, when we retaliate or disrespect authority or take matters in our own hands and to say, I'm justified in repaying this person or these persons for what they have done to me, we are making ourselves the judge and the jury over the situation. We will always get it wrong. We will always make matters worse, no matter how many of our friends and family tell us we were justified in our actions. Would you agree with me that Jesus was being treated unfairly when he's being tried by the high priest? He was being treated unfairly. He was being persecuted, not only by the high priest, but by the Sanhedrin court, 
70 spiritual leaders in Israel, and also finally by Pilate, and then maybe even more so by the people who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Of course he was mistreated, treated unfairly. He was innocent and in the right. They were guilty and in the wrong. But how did Jesus respond to that? Well, Isaiah prophesied how he would respond in Isaiah 53 when he said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own selfish ways. And the Lord hath laid not on us, but on him the iniquity of all of us, of our sin. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He refrained from retaliation. He still respected authority, though it was evil. He realized and remembered that God was his judge, not man. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. For to this you, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. To him who judges righteously. Ultimately, folks, we have a judge who will pass judgment on all of our lives. And those who mistreat others will answer for every single thought, motive, and deed they've ever committed. But likewise, when I'm called by God to undergo adversity and hardship and unfairness, maybe at the hands of an instructor who has treated me unfairly or an employer who has treated me unfairly or someone who has cheated me of what was rightfully mine or someone who just decided to hate me and everything I represent, perhaps because I'm seeking to follow Christ closely and in the same way they hated him, they hate you and me. And when we undergo all those things, if we're going to do what Christ did, we refrain from retaliating. We respect the authority a person has, even if we can't respect the person themselves. And we also remember and realize that there is a God who is the rightful judge and who will set all things straight one day. Well, that's the start of this message.
We'll finish it next week. But let me leave you with this. It's a poem, an anonymous poem, but I think it speaks exactly to what this story is all about. It responds and speaks to the fact that we will suffer adversity in this life. It's a part of God's plan to build you and me. It's called When God Wants to Drill a Man. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world will be amazed. Watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and which every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Whatever God is doing in your life right now, no matter how hard it is, no matter who is causing the blows to be rained down on you, understand that ultimately there is a God at work in your life behind all of it. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story and example of David, a man after your own heart. Father, we remember and would never lose sight of the fact that he was a sinner, subject to temptations just as we are. In many ways, he failed in his family and his personal life. But ultimately, you chose him and you worked on him and through him to cause his heart to lean towards you in everything in life. I pray that you would do the same in us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.